Well, peace be with you. It's good to be with you all on this Lord's Day morning. Um, as uh, Dan briefly uh, alluded to, I have been out of the pulpit for the, the last month, and so I'm very excited to be um, back in the pulpit talking about the most important things in the universe. Um, what a privilege, what a joy, what an honor to, to be um, looking at God's word with you and expounding God's word to you uh, this morning. If you want to turn to Amos uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, we're starting a several-month-long sermon series. We should finish late October, early November um, in Amos, and uh, as you will see, um, as we work through the book, this is an extremely relevant book of the Bible for our particular cultural moment. And um, we're really just going to scratch the surface today, um, which is hard for me because I want to jump in, but uh, we only have so much time and we have a, uh, a lot more Sundays to dig through this book together. Uh, and so let's scratch the surface this morning and, and then... Uh, and then hopefully continue to dig deeper and deeper as time goes on. Uh, but before we uh, do so, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Actually, let me say one thing. Um, we have a Connect card on our website. I know that some of you are guests this morning. Uh, we'd love if you would take a few moments just to fill out a, a uh, Connect card on our website. You can go to veritasdayton.org slash connect. And there's a digital Connect card on there. Um, obviously, we don't have physical ones right now. I'm trying to stay away from having bulletins and physical pieces of paper to hand people right now, but if you'd go to our website and fill that out so that we know uh, who you are and how we can be praying for you and how we can get connected with you, we'd count it an honor and a joy to be able to pray for you this week and reach out to you. So please go to our website and fill that out. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's pray now before we enter into Amos 1 verses 1 and 2. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. You are the righteous and holy and just God, and there's no one like you in heaven or on earth. And we come to this text now and ask, Lord, that you would show us something of your holiness. We know it's here. We know that your word is living and active and that this truly reveals who you are. This is your voice coming to us, but also, Lord, we know that we're deaf and we're blind and we're hard-hearted, so would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel the weightiness of what this text says. And I know that, that as I try to teach and preach and apply this text, that my my words, this sermon is but hay and stubble, but we pray that you would light it on fire by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that our hearts might be pierced with the truth of your word, that we might believe you and trust you and obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, uh, the Uyghur people are... A Central Asian people living in northwest China. There are about 10 million of them there. 
And as a majority uh, Muslim people group, they have not been viewed favorably by the Chinese, the communist Chinese government. In recent years, much of their culture has been desecrated, their architecture bulldozed, their mosques surrounded with pork markets on purpose, some of their uh, religious practices forbidden by the Chinese government. But worse yet, what has been described as one of the, the worst human rights violations of the century has recently been exposed. Around one million Uyghur people have been forcibly moved to internment camps, wherein they've been subjected to horrendous treatment, such as uh, family separation and sterilization, so that they can't continue to reproduce. And this has all been at the hands of the Chinese government, who describes these camps as re-education camps. Does God care about that? In 1969, in the state of Texas, Norma McCorvey became pregnant with her third child and she wanted to have an abortion. Texas, however, at this time, such an action was not legal. And so she sought out lawyers who filed a suit against the state of Texas. And to make a long story short, um, they claimed that this prohibition was not constitutional and McCorvey's case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case known as Roe v. Wade in which this landmark decision was made in 1973 to declare abortion a woman's constitutional right across all 50 states in the U.S. And since then there have been over 61 million unborn children slain in the United States with approval from the U.S. government. Does God care about that? Brianna Taylor was a 26-year-old paramedic in Louisville, Kentucky. On the evening of March 13, she had fallen asleep in her home while she was watching a movie with her boyfriend. And while asleep, Louisville police officers broke into her apartment by mistake, serving a no-knock warrant, and unloaded 20 bullets into her apartment, five of those hitting her own body. She lay in her hallway, unexamined, untouched, untreated, for 20 minutes, where she bled and died there on her hallway floor. The officers responsible have not been arrested or charged. And this, of course, took place, place in close proximity to several very public events wherein black lives were taken across the U.S. You might think of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, and more. Does God care? Where, where is he in all of this injustice and in all of this pain and suffering in the world? Does he care? Well, the answer, according to the prophet Amos, is indeed, yes, he cares. Indeed, God does care, and he has a plan to do something about these injustices and others like them. Amos is a book in the Bible named after a 
prophet who wrote it, uh, the, uh, Amos, he's considered one of the, uh, the minor prophets. Minor isn't denoting a level of importance, uh, but simply the length of the book. Uh, in the Bible, there are four major prophets who have very long books. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, along with Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets whose books are shorter. And I kind of have to do my little jingle when I do it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And now these prophets were uh, individuals who were called by God to declare the word of God to the people of God and sometimes to the nation surrounding the people of God. They were sent by God largely to do four things, okay? They were called to confront people in their sin, to call them to repentance, to communicate God's messages of judgment, and to comfort them with the promises of God. And of course, you'll find all of these four uh, emphases in Amos, but by and large, what you're going to find in Amos, what you're mainly going to see is the, the confrontation of sin and the communication of God's messages of judgment. It's largely what you're going to see in Amos. But now, what else is kind of unique about Amos is, is the particular sin he confronts, okay? So if you read the prophets, you'll by and large see three particular sins Confronted idolatry, empty worship, and social injustice. And these are the sins that God's people in the Old Testament seem to be falling into over and over and over, and they might take different shapes and forms and practice and be practiced in kind of different ways uh, throughout the years. But but idolatry, empty worship, and social injustice basically sums up God's lawsuit against the nation of Israel as delivered by the prophets. Amos, however, doesn't as much confront Israel about idolatry. He does confront them some about empty worship, but the vast majority of his message, the main focus of his message and his confrontation to sin is on the social injustices committed by the people of God and sometimes the nation surrounding Israel. And so he comes with these, these scathing rebukes and scary pronouncements of judgment. But of course, these, these rebukes and these pronouncements of judgment, they actually don't belong to Amos. These belong to the sovereign God through whom Amos, through whom he's declaring through Amos. He's pronouncing these judgments and pronouncements as the sovereign Lord of the universe himself. The words of Amos are actually the words of God, as we see in, uh, from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, including Amos, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So for that reason, we would do well to consider these words, to submit to them, to believe them, to heed them, to obey them, to revere them. And to that end, we're going to spend the next several months slowly walking through this book, examining it to better understand the justice of God. This morning, as I mentioned though, however, we're simply going to introduce this book. We're going to read... Uh, the first two verses of the first chapter, and we're simply going to begin by reading them. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we stand out of respect for God's word. We not only stand, we also listen with reverence and with joy 
because our God is the one who inspired these words. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now as we unpack these verses, we're going to find this this big idea here that the Lord shows that he cares about injustice by sending his people and his judgments. The Lord cares about injustice. He shows that he cares about injustice by showing his people and his judgments. We're going to kind of unpack that as we look at the prophet, the problem, and the prophecy. The prophet, the problem, and the prophecy. First, as we're introduced to this book, we need to get introduced to uh, the, the book's namesake, namely the prophet Amos. This book begins by saying the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So we see his name is, is Amos, uh, which is a word that literally means burden bearer, which is fitting since he was given a burden by the Lord to preach this message of justice and judgment to the nation of Israel. But he wasn't always a prophet, as you can see. In fact, he was actually counted, he says, among the shepherds of Tekoa. This is a town just a, uh, in Judah, just a little way south of Jerusalem. But then he wasn't only a shepherd, he was also a, a farmer of sorts. If you look at Amos chapter 7, we see this confrontation between Amos and the, the head priest in Israel, a man named Amaziah, who was unhappy with the content of Amos's preaching. And in that conversation, Amos actually says to Amaziah in uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 7, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He was a shepherd, and he was a farmer. He was a herdsman. He was a horticulturalist of sorts. And yet the Lord burdened him with this task of preaching to Israel about their injustice and about the coming judgment of God. And this is significant because that means that Amos didn't belong to uh, what was at that time called the company or the school of the prophets. We see this in uh, the school of prophets in, in 1 Samuel 19, 2 Kings 2, 2 Kings 4, which might be compared to a kind of seminary or, or training school for prophets in those days. He wasn't formally or, or trained or educated as a prophet. He didn't grow up in the home of a prophet. He didn't have experience as a prophet. He didn't have religious connections. He never served in the court of the kings. In, 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 in other words, he was very ordinary, much like you and like me. And now as I've been reflecting on this over the last week, I, I found myself praying for some of you praying that, that some of you in this very room or watching the live stream right now who might very well be in the midst of a vocation like Amos's, you might be a shepherd or in medical profession or financial profession or something along those lines, but you've been feeling God burden your spirit that he might be calling you into something that you didn't quite plan for your life. 
Perhaps you feel that the Lord is calling you to, to step into a new vocation based on the needs of his people and his kingdom. Perhaps, perhaps you might need to step into a new ministry that works to serve marginalized and oppressed peoples. You might be sensing a, a, a call or a burden from the Lord to pursue a calling to bring the truth of the gospel to the nations. And to be sent across cultures and oceans to preach the gospel to people still unreached with the truth of the gospel. Some of you might be, might, might be sensing a call to preach God's word in pastoral ministry or in church planting. And of course, you know, that's not to say that remaining a shepherd or a dresser of sycamore figs is wrong by any means. Our, our Lord spent the majority of his life as a carpenter. He's thus sanctified, you know, so-called, what we call secular vocations. But sometimes I, I wonder if we've emphasized that the dignity of such vocations to the point where we've maybe neglected another reality, and that's this, that the Lord does at, time give, at times does give individuals a, a sacred and set-apart calling outside of those ordinary vocations. And God's people ought to remain open to hearing such callings and heeding them when they come. Because at times he does indeed call individuals out of shepherding and farming and into a sacred calling for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. And if you've been called into such calling, if you're sensing the burden of the Lord in that way, then take a lesson from Amos here. The Lord will equip you and he will furnish you with the gifts needed for your calling. The Lord always equips those whom he calls. You, you might feel intimidated and fearful and apprehensive at the thought of pursuing such a calling because you lack the experience or the education. But know this for certain, friend. All the education and experience in the world doesn't amount to a hill of beans apart from the Lord's calling. If he's called you, he will do it. It's a great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, he said, God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. And that's not to disparage education or experience. I think the world of formal education may sometimes be necessary. Experience is often the means through which the Lord gives us the skills needed to pursue his callings in our lives. And yet, look nowhere else for your sufficiency than to the Lord who has called you may require sacrifice. The need may be great, but the Lord is sufficient for his people. We see this in Amos' life. He was most certainly required to sacrifice. The need was great. The people to whom he was called to preach were not particularly prone to receive his message, which we find next as we turn to consider not only the prophet, but the problem. The problem, verse 1 goes on to say, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, of course, Amos's ministry took place in those days wherein the kingdom was split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the king of Israel, Jeroboam, would have been Jeroboam the second, not Jeroboam the first. Uzziah reigned from 767 to 740 B.C. Jeroboam the second from 782 to 753 B.C. And so that means that Amos prophesied sometime uh, in the narrow window uh, when those two kings overlapped, somewhere between six, 767 B.C. and 753 B.C. And then he narrows in a little more. He even says it was two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know exactly when this earthquake was because 
earthquakes in that part of the world, they are not uncommon. They happen somewhat often. But this one was significant enough. This was a large enough earthquake. This was a large enough event for God's people to mark the time in which Amos prophesied. Not only that, actually we see this very earthquake mentioned as a, an act of judgment upon the people in Zechariah 14.5. So it also legitimizes Amos's prophecy as well. And now although Amos was himself from Judah, the Lord called him to cross the border into Israel and preach there. And Israel in those days, in the days of Jeroboam II, was experiencing a, a great deal of uh, prosperity and success. They had several successful military conquests. They were able to expand their territory since Assyria in the north had weakened in recent years. And along with this geographical expansion, they had subsequently experienced uh, a a lot of success in commerce and trade, resulting in economic and, and financial prosperity. In fact, they might have been experiencing prosperity, financial prosperity, unlike any other time in their nation's history. Things were looking up in Israel, so they thought. Later in the book, in Amos 3.15, Amos discusses that some of the Israelites had more than one home. They had a winter home, many of them, and then a summer home elsewhere. They were doing well. Amos 6, 4 through 6, he describes their decadence in vivid terms. He, He says that they had very ornate and fancy furniture. They have these beds of ivory, these lavish couches on which they lay. They ate the finest foods. They had the the lambs and the calves. They they had innovations in the arts. They invented new instruments for their own pleasure. They had such an abundance of wine, Emma says, that they, they didn't even bother with wine glasses or cups. They drank from bowls. They anointed themselves with the finest oils, meaning they, they had all the best uh, when it came to uh, cosmetics and beauty products. They were doing very well. And yet... The trouble with all of this is that their decadence, as it so often does, lulled them into a spiritual lethargy and led them to overlook the plight of the poor. Amos mentions some of these, some of these offenses in Amos 2, 6-7. He says, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. And he'll go on and on throughout the book. And we'll see much, much more. But you can kind of see the problem here, can't you? Here we have this decadent society with summer homes and bowls of wine and the finest beauty products flourishing financially, abounding economically, but it's built on the backs of the poor and the marginalized who are continually being oppressed and exploited by the rich and the rich gain from their plight. The poor are not getting fair wages, as we'll see. They're being exploited for gain. They're being unfairly judged in the courts as judges are bribed by the rich and powerful elite. And you have to see, this is precisely the kind of community that Israel was forbidden to be. God's people were called to be a community of justice and righteousness. Instead of being a community that exploited the poor and oppressed, they were called to be a community that assisted the poor and oppressed. Instead of perpetuating poverty, they were to alleviate poverty. 
In fact, their entire economic system in the Old Testament was prescribed by God's law, was set up, so Deuteronomy 15.4, so that there would be no poor in the midst of Israel. In other words, he constituted Israel so that she would be a nation of justice. And the problem is that they are people of injustice here, as we see in Amos. And this is a major theme in the book of Amos, this theme of justice and injustice. And, and I, I want to briefly discuss this theme of justice. It might seem like kind of a rabbit trail, but I kind of want to briefly discuss this because, and we'll get more and more into it in the book, but let's briefly define it here because justice is a word and theme discussed a lot in Scripture, but it's also a word thrown around a lot in our particular cultural moment. And so often, we're, we're so used to thinking of this word in terms of partisan politics and not thinking of it in terms of biblical and theological categories. And so if we don't define it, then we run the risk of, of importing our understanding of this word onto the pages of Scripture and misunderstanding what Scripture is saying. And so justice, speaking very broadly, very briefly, is spoken of in Scripture in two different ways. One way is what we might call retributive justice. Retributive justice. And it relates to us as sinners. As fallen humanity, we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so he gives retributive justice in his judgments, both in this life and in the life to come. And this idea is sometimes what we see in the scriptures and in the book of Amos when this word justice is used. Actually, uh, th this idea is very prevalent and present here in the book of Amos. But then there's another way that the word is used, and that's what we might call restorative justice. Restorative justice, and more often than not, when the word justice is used in the Bible and in Amos, this is actually what it means. And if retributive justice relates to us uh, as sinners, restorative justice relates to us as human beings, as image bearers. Because humanity is made in the image of God. The Lord desires that all people get their just due as such. In other words, because humanity is created in the image of God, possessing profound dignity and value because of it, it's not right that people should go without their basic needs and rights deprived of them. It's not right that anyone should be enslaved by another human being. It's not right that anyone should live in abject poverty. It's not right that anyone should be oppressed and marginalized by their neighbor or be discriminated against because of the color of their skin or the people group they belong to. And so restorative justice is those realities being reversed in the created order. When an orphan is adopted into a loving family, when the poor are lifted out of their poverty, when a slave is freed from slavery, when the oppressed are no longer oppressed but given their just due as divine image bearers, restorative justice is done. And I want you to see that the Lord is a God who redeems his people so that they might be a people of this kind of justice. Why? Because, because the fact of the matter is, is that the God who saves and redeems his people is in fact a God of justice. 
The calling on God's people to be a people of justice is rooted and grounded in the reality that the Lord is a God of justice. Understand, justice is not just an idea or an abstract concept. Justice is an eternal attribute of the living God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice, O Lord, are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 146, 7 and 9 says, The Lord is a God who executes justice for the oppressed. How does he do that? Who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over sojourners, those are immigrants. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You see, God is a God of justice. And not only that, but he has formed and redeemed his people to be agents of justice in the earth so that he might be faithfully represented by his people in the earth. He saved and redeemed the people of Israel so that they might be a community and nation unlike any other nation and community in the earth. A nation that executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry and sets prisoners free and lifts up those who are bowed down. He set his people apart so that they might watch over the immigrant and uphold the widow and the orphan. He saved them to be a people who practice justice in their interpersonal relationships, in their homes, in their congregations, and even as we read Leviticus 19, in their societal systems and structures. He saved his people so that they would be a kingdom of priests representing the God of justice to all the nations of the earth. That's why he redeemed Israel. And friends, that's part of why we've been redeemed as well. I don't think I could put it better than, than Leslie Newbegin in his book, Sign of the Kingdom. In it, he says, the question which has to be put to every local congregation is the question whether it is a credible sign of God's reign in justice and mercy over the whole of life. Whether it is a fellowship whose concerns are as wide as the concerns of humanity, whether it cares for its neighbors in a way which reflects and springs out of God's care for them. And that's the question. That's a question that's going to be put to us again and again in the book of Amos as a local congregation over the next several months. Whether we're a credible sign of God's justice and mercy. Whether we care for our neighbors in a way that reflects and springs from his care of us. God hates injustice, but he is a God of justice and he upholds justice and he calls us to be a people of justice. He hates when his people perpetuate justice, injustice. He hates when his people are passive in the face of injustice. And during the reign of Jeroboam, the problem is that the people of Israel perpetuated injustice and others were passive in the face of it. And so for that reason, he pronounces his judgment upon Israel, which brings us lastly to the prophecy. To the prophecy as I mentioned before, the book of Amos is, is largely a, a book focusing on the confrontation of sin and communicating the message of, of God's judgment. Amos summarizes this here in verse 2. He says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. 
And right away here, Amos speaks of the Lord, as he will several times throughout the book, as a roaring lion. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And of course, as, as you might know, Zion, Jerusalem, this is the place of God's temple, the sort of sign of God's presence amongst the people of Israel. And normally, this temple is pictured as God's house, the place where he makes his abode and his home amongst the people of Israel. as a sign of his presence and favor with them. But here, Amos doesn't speak of the temple in this way. Here, the temple is pictured as a kind of lion's den. And it's from this din that the Lord roars his message of judgment. His blood-curdling roar goes forth as a sign that he is stirred within his lion's den. And he is preparing to pounce on his prey in judgment. He is about to pounce on the nation of Israel in judgment and devour them as a lion does its prey. And he goes on to, to say the pastures of the shepherds mourn the top of Carmel withers. And here he, he's saying that, that the nation's economic and financial success, their prosperity, their decadence, it has an expiration date. His patience has run out with them. And so the pastures are going to dry up and wither. The top of Carmel is going to wither. And part of what you need to understand there is that Carmel was a, a mountain range in Israel usually associated with lush and bountiful vegetation. This was a place where trees and crops flourished and abounded. It was a fertile land, much like these green pastures that he's picturing here. But the spine-chilling roar of the Lord says that these places are going to wither. In other words, the nation of Israel may look like lush caramel or like green pastures right now. They may live lavish lifestyles. They may be flourishing. They may be enjoying a great deal of prosperity and economic success. But the Lord's judgment is coming. And they will wither like crops in a famine and drought. The day of wrath is near and Israel will not escape this day of disaster. And you might be wondering, why would you preach that? Why would you want to explore and explain a, a message like this in the book of Amos to Veritas? In the midst of these times, shouldn't we focus on messages that are more positive and encouraging, like K-Love? There's a time and a place for that. But there's a time and a place for us to consider this reality too, that our God is a fierce God. Our God is a God of justice and judgment, and he does not wink at sin. He is a God who roars like a lion at the reality of sin and injustice. He doesn't wink at it like a senile old grandpa. Rather, he's like a lion who roars and devours the wicked like a lion does his prey. And there are two groups that I'd like to, to sort of try to press this message home to this morning. First, for those of you listening who are not Christians, those of you present here, those watching in the live stream, if you're not a Christian, but then also for those of us who are Christians, but first for those listening who, who aren't Christians, you, you need to understand something. The God who made you is a God of justice and wrath. And you have offended him. You have sinned against him. 
And just as Amos preached to Israel about this day of judgment coming, so I can say most assuredly to you, there's a day of judgment coming for you. You may think of yourself as mostly a good person who's just made a few mistakes here or there. You may have lied a few times. You may have stolen a small item on occasion. You may have mistreated a spouse or significant other or children a couple times. You may have made a few racist jokes. A number of other things. Or, or, or maybe you might have made what you call a few big mistakes in life. You've perpetuated injustice, been passive in the, in the face of injustice. But here's the thing. No matter whether what these so-called mistakes, no matter whether they're big or small, what the scriptures call them is sin. And each one of them is an act of cosmic treason against the God who created you for himself. And so you stand condemned before him. And here's the bad news. He's going to judge you one day. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Understand, you could walk out of here this morning, get in your car, drive home, get in a car accident, smack your head against the windshield, and be a goner. And then you will meet your maker. You will stand before him and he will declare you condemned. And you will spend eternity being tormented in the fires of hell without relief and without any hope of relief. That's what awaits you. But then that's not all. The, the Lord, the God who condemns you in his great grace and kindness has given you a way of escape. He's given you a way of escaping the wrath to come. He himself has actually come to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and he didn't sin and commit cosmic treason. Rather, he lived the perfect life that you and I ought to have lived. And then what's more, instead of receiving the reward for it, he actually took upon himself the judgment that you and I deserve. The retributive justice that you and I deserve fell on him when he died a cursed death on the cross of Calvary. And on that cross, he took upon himself the wrath of the Almighty God himself, and he absorbed every last drop of God's wrath in your place if you trust in him. And so if you turn away from your sin and trust in him, the judgment day you deserve will have taken place 2,000 years ago on that cross. And the judgment day that Christ deserves is what you will receive when you stand before him. And so don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Turn away from sin, trust in Christ, and you will be saved from the wrath to come. That's this message of judgment means for those of us who are not Christians here this morning then I also want to consider what this message means for, for those of us who are Christians, what we ought to consider in light of this message of judgment. If we Christians, you know, are those who have been set free from the condemnation and wrath to come on the day of judgment, then, then why do we need to consider this? Why do we need to hear this? 
This is a good question, especially considering that Amos's audience largely made up of believers, and the audience will mainly be listening to this over the next several months here at Veritas, mainly made up of believers. And I want to get at this from two levels. First, as, as Christians, we need to remember that God is a God of justice, and therefore, he requires justice of his people. It's that famous verse says in Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? It's not an option. God's people must take every sphere of their lives captive to the lordship of God. From our interpersonal relationships to our family dynamics to this congregational life to the systems and societal structures in which we live. And if we persistently and perpetually persevere in disobedience, whether it be by omission or commission, then we do indeed face temporal judgments in this life. As our church's confession says under Article 13, as God's people, we can sometimes fall into sin whereby we grieve the Spirit, impair our graces and comforts, bring reproach on the church, and bring temporal judgments on ourselves. And indeed, these judgments are not intended by God to be punitive. We don't face punitive judgments as Christians. God sends these, these judgments as purifying judgments. When we persist and persevere in sin, the Apostle Peter, he speaks of this kind of judgment. 1 Peter 4.17, he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Sometimes as individuals, as churches, as denominations, as ministries, God's people can persist and persevere in sin and be subjected to such temporal judgments. So we have to consider this theme of judgment. Take care to keep watch on ourselves and to endeavor to obey God's word, to do justice and obedience to him. But then secondly, it's relevant for, for us as Christians because, because we ought to consider the eternal judgment from which we've been saved. We ought to continue to consider the eternal judgment from which we've been saved. You know, I came across this, this quote from Richard Lovelace in his great book on spiritual renewal recently where he said that the shallowness of many people who are quote-unquote saved may be due to the fact that they never have no, they've never known themselves to be lost. In other words, so, so often those professing to be Christians lack a proper appreciation of the amazing grace of the gospel because they don't truly grasp what it is the gospel saves us from. Namely, the eternal judgment of the infinitely holy God. Many of us have, have little to no comprehension of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin and the severity of the judgment we deserve because of it. Many of us possess little to no fear of God, no horrors at the thought of hell, no appreciation of God's justice. And so, so many of us yawn when we hear about Christ's work on the cross for us. We, we half-heartedly sing songs of gratitude and thanksgiving in corporate worship. We, we approach the Lord's Supper irreverently. We slouch in private prayer. We, we neglect intake of Holy Scripture. We live out our days drunk on financial prosperity and creaturely comforts, failing to ever give thought, much less action, to the injustices all around us. We don't evangelize our lost friends. 
family members or neighbors. We don't give thought to the nations of the earth who have never heard of Christ and who will, who will therefore perish and face judgment without way of escape. We like zeal and holiness and reverence all because we think lightly of God and of his holiness and of his justice and of his coming judgment. And if that describes us at all, if we're, if we're sleepy Christians, we're altogether false Christians, then we so need the smelling salts of the book of Amos. We need this book, we need its prophecy to wake us up to the reality of our God and our calling as his people. We need a new and deeper appreciation of his justice he is a God of justice. He does care about justice. He hates it with a burning hatred and he's shown us this. As he sends his people to speak out against his judgments, there's, to speak out against injustice and he sends his judgments to punish it and correct it in this life. He sent Amos to show this and he still sends his people today for the same reason confronted the problem of injustice in Israel because he calls his people to be agents of justice and righteousness in the world. And he gave Amos his prophecy to remind his people of the reality of his wrath and his judgment against injustice. So my prayer over the next several months is that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we explore this book, that this book would be smelling salts to the, those of us who are falling asleep and spiritually lethargic. Let's pray to that end now. Father, wake us up to the reality of who you are in your holiness and your righteousness and your justice. And grant us to have soft hearts molded by your word and your spirit who receive the seed of your word, who continually repent and depend on Christ and who produce 30, 60, 100-fold fruit in our personal lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in this church in our state, and in our nation. Lord, grant us to heed and to hear the message of Amos this morning and in the weeks to come, that we might live lives pleasing and honoring to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.